0: God, we thank you that you are the living God, the God who spoke in the past in many and different ways through the prophets, and yet has spoken finally and decisively in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we come to your Word, and to him who is the living Word, and we seek the help of your Holy Spirit, that you might take my feeble words and apply them to our hearts and minds. And on hearing your word, may we respond to it in repentance, in obedience, and in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. 9-11, 7-7, Afghanistan. Iraq, Israel and Lebanon. And just three days ago, a full security alert on the highest level at all British airports in response to a plot to blow up jumbo jets full of people. What is the normal response to such events? Fear. Fear. So much so that you can be almost afraid to switch on the radio and television or open a newspaper for fear of what is happening. So, must we live with fear? Or is there a way our fear can be addressed? In the Bible, in the Hebrew hymn book, there is a psalm composed almost three millennia ago, which affirms that no matter what happens, there is an antidote to fear. You'll find it in our Bible in Psalm 46. Will you turn to our Bible if you have one? It's on page 570. There are Bibles in the pews. If you can't see one, ask someone to pass one to you. And what I want to do this morning is to follow the three R's, to read it together, to reflect on it together and finally to rejoice in it together as we will conclude with a paraphrase of this psalm. So we're going to read it together and for those who don't have Bibles, the words should come on the screen and my prompt screen has been removed here. So join with me as we affirm the words of Psalm 46, we'll read it together, all together. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts His voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord. The desolations He has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the read. Now the reflection. We call it the news, don't we? But there's nothing new, really. For this psalm could be a commentary on the world we live in today. Look at the scenario. A scenario of personal troubles, verse 1. Natural disasters, verses 2 to 3. And international conflicts, verse 6. It is even centred, once again, on the tiny nation of Israel and its capital city, Jerusalem. So, how do you respond if you live in such times? The surprising answer is with a song in which the singers confidently affirm, therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, tells us that this is not bury your head in the sand blind optimism, but rather that the singers have reasons to rejoice even in these circumstances. And these reasons are centered on the God they worship, on their relationship with God. Derek Kidner writes in the excellent commentary on the book of Psalms, the Tyndale commentary, our true security is in God, not in God plus anything else. Our true security is in God not in God plus anything else. So, look with me at the reasons to rejoice that we find in this psalm, which are based on the character and promises of God. And as we do so, I want you to notice something that the psalmist does not say, something that the psalmist only dimly perceived and hoped for, that we have more reasons to rejoice even than this psalmist who wrote this wonderful song because we live in God's grace A.D., not B.C., in the year of our Lord Jesus, not before His coming. We can summarize the readings, why we can sing, therefore we will not rejoice, under three headings, because preachers always have three headings, and they always begin with the same letter to help us remember, and if it really annoys you, just ignore them. Okay, the first reason is this. In this psalm, We rejoice and will not fear because we know the protection of God. In verse 1, there are three words, Hebrew words translated into English, which describe God's protection. First of all, it says, God is our refuge when we are vulnerable. The word translated refuge is used throughout the Psalms and in the prophets. Uh, Look, for example, at Psalm 62. Verses 5 to 8. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Same word. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. The idea is, the word refuge, is the idea of a solid external place of protection. I've been receiving almost daily emails from a young man who used to worship with us, who's serving in a home for the needy, in Haifa, in northern Israel. And every day I get the emails saying, once again the alarm sounded, the Katusha rockets came over, and we all ran for the bomb shelters. That's the kind of idea that the word refuge communicates. Now for the psalmist, his refuge is not in a place, but in a person. God, he says, is our refuge. Back in the 18th century, a Church of England minister with a rather quaint name, although maybe it was popular in those days, but his name was the Reverend Augustus M. Toplady. He was an Anglican minister and one Sunday afternoon, after preaching in the morning, he ministered in a beautiful place down in Somerset in England. He took a walk out in the countryside. It was a very open place and suddenly a heavy downpour of rain came down. The place is still there, it's exposed with very little shelter. But he spotted a cleft running down a mass of rock by the side of the road, into which he was able to run and find shelter until the storm passed. And as he stood there watching the storm outside, the story we are told, he reflected on his experience and then reflected on his experience as a Christian. And we're told that he picked up something to write on and composed on the spot a hymn. Wrote it on the back of a playing card. I was trying to find on the internet. I'm sure the Americans somewhere have bought it and it's somewhere you can see. But if you know where it is, that's where it is. They haven't got the rock, but they've got the playing card, I think. But you know the hymn that he wrote. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And in the hymn, Top Lady tells us, our only true security from the storms of life and more importantly from the storms of God's judgment because of our sin is to be found in Christ and in His cross. A place of refuge. God is our refuge. Christ is our refuge. Our refuge when we are vulnerable. Note, not only that, notice secondly, God is also our strength when we are weak. If refuge focuses on external security, strength relates to inner resources. God's strength at work within a person. However, there's a principle about God's power. God's power only works in weak people who admit that they have a need, who confess their weaknesses. And it's a difficult lesson to learn. And that is sometimes why God places us in vulnerable, difficult situations where our natural reaction is to fear when our own weakness is exposed so that we might confess that and in that situation prove God's strength. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson, those wonderful words in his second letter to the Christians in Corinth. You remember, he said, A messenger from Satan was sent to me, a thorn in my flesh, and three times I pleaded with the Lord, Lord, take it away! I need to be strong to serve you. But here's the lesson that God taught him. God said to him, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And this was Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me That is why, for Christ's sake, notice what he's saying here, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Here's the principle. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, let me personalize this. Maybe you're in a situation today where you're weak and you finally learnt that you're weak. You've been trying to live by your own strength and resources. Things have happened. I don't know. Some of you I know well. Some of you have no idea. And even the ones I think I know well, who knows behind the facade. And this morning you know that you're weak. And maybe you're afraid. What does the future hold? How are you going to cope? Can I simply say, not in a facile way at all, that maybe God has placed you in that situation of weakness that you might prove in a way that you never have before His strength in your weakness, so we need not fear when we are vulnerable, because God is our refuge. We need not fear when we are weak, because God is our strength, and thirdly, we need not fear when we're in trouble, because God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. The promise is, of course, that God is always ready to help, always reliable, always ready to respond to the person in need who cries out to him. You see, maybe as I was saying that maybe there's someone here this morning, you say, "What do I do?" You simply cry out to God. He's always there. Maybe you've ignored Him all your life. Maybe you've lived by your own resources and strength. And this morning God says, Call to me. There's a wonderful promise in the psalm about seeking God's help in Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. Sometimes, of course, the help may seem to be delayed. A little phrase in verse 5. God will help her at break of day. There's an echo, of course, there in the history of Israel. Remember the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, pursued by Pharaoh's army. There they are in the red in front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them are the hosts of Pharaoh's chariots and horses. And at break of day, as the dawn breaks, God opens up and parts away, and they pass through on dry ground and are saved. God always listens to the cries of needy people. Now, I said at the beginning, we live A.D., not B.C. Here's a wonderful promise. The book of Hebrews tells us that we can come to God through Jesus. Therefore, he says, we have this great high priest who's over the house of God, Jesus. He says, hold firmly to the faith you profess. Let us then, he says, approach the throne of grace, God's throne. Not a throne of merit, but of grace. Grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy, that's the first thing we need, and find grace to help us in our time of need. A song made very popular by Johnny Cash, puts it very clearly, very simply. I won't try and sing it, but I'll just tell you what the words were for those who don't like Johnny Cash. If you don't like Johnny Cash, speak to me afterwards and I'll put you straight, but anyway. um, Johnny Cash sang, And I talk to Jesus every day. And he's interested in every word I say. No secretary ever tells me he's been called away. I talk to Jesus every day. Grace to help in time of need. So we need not fear. We are assured of God's protection. For God is our refuge when we're vulnerable. He's our strength when we're weak. And ever-present help when we're in trouble. No matter what may happen. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way, the mountains Though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, even if the immovable, the earth, gives way, even if the impregnable, the mountains, fall into the sea, even if the sea itself does its tsunami-like worst, God's people need not fear, for we are ultimately, eternally, secure under the presence of God. That does not mean we don't live through natural disasters, suffer in natural disasters, but it does mean ultimately that we are secure, eternally secure in God's hand because God is our protection. And not only that, the song goes on to assure us of a second thing. Not only the protection of God, but the presence of God. Notice how the scene shifts after the opening verses. From nations and nature in turmoil, it moves... To a city under siege. That's the picture here. It's the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies on all sides, besieged. And in such siege-like conditions, the city of Jerusalem had an Achilles heel. It had no fresh water supply. Unlike many capital cities in the ancient world, if you built a capital city, you always made sure of one thing, build it on or by a river. So what's the psalmist talking about? Says here's the city of Jerusalem surrounded by enemies bent on its destruction. He says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What river? The river, of course, he's talking about, is the river of God's presence. God's people have inner resources. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The river is the river of God's presence, bringing life-giving and refreshing renewal to His people. So, not only can the citizens of the city say, God is with us, but He can also say, God is within us. He is present in the city where He's chosen to dwell among His people, Israel, in the sanctuary and later in the temple. So her resources, her inner resilience, her resources will never run dry. The city will not succumb to that siege, for God is within her, she will not fall. Now again, think, this is a wonderful psalm. It's a wonderful promise to the people of Israel, but it's a wonderful promise to God's new covenant people. The future fulfillment is that God is with us. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph who learnt that his fiance was pregnant about to bear a child? He says, the virgin will be with child. You will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God with us. And those who saw this baby when he grew up and meant about his ministry for three years, they could write and say, the Word became flesh. God with us in person. Made his dwelling among us, we've seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God with us, but God within us. Remember what Jesus said to that outcast Samaritan woman by a well? He said, Everyone who drinks this water again will be thirsty will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is he talking about? He's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit poured out upon dwelling within God's people. A promise fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the followers of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what were they filled with? Gladness and joy. And the same gift of the Holy Spirit is promised to all who repent and put their faith in Jesus. You remember on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached that amazing sermon. At the end, the people were cut to the heart. They said, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the same gift we've received in the upper room. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we respond to that in repentance and faith, what happens? We become part of God's family. We become citizens of God's city and His kingdom. And the New Testament, we don't have time to look at it, has this wonderful theme. It's great verses in Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to Jesus. We belong to God's family if we've come in repentance and faith to Christ. God with us, God within us, part of His people, citizens of His eternal city. That final city in the book of Revelation that comes down from heaven like a bride prepared. We need to read the end of Revelation 22, beginning of the chapter. So those who experience the protection of God need not fear. Those who experience the presence of God need not fear. And thirdly and finally... The psalm gives a third reason why we need not fear because of the plan of God, verses 8 to 10. Is it not true? Be honest now. Sometimes, when you open your newspaper, when you switch on the news, you may not say it, certainly in Charlotte Chapel, but are there not times when you look at it and think, is anybody really in control? Has God just sort of wound this up and He's just letting it go? Where is God in it all? This psalm tells us. The psalm invites us to do something. The psalm says, in the midst of all this turmoil, all this happening, he says, Come and see. The word see is an interesting word. It's not the normal word seeing your eyes. It's the word used of foresight. It's the word used for a prophet or a seer, which is where the word comes from. And he's seeing things from God's perspective. He says, Come into my presence, listen to what I'm saying, come and see. It is seeing not with physical sight or even human insight. It is seeing with the eye of faith from God's perspective when we come into His presence. And you see two things in these verses. You see, first of all, what God is doing. What is God doing in this present situation? Especially in the suffering and turmoil. He is acting in judgment to bring people to salvation. He is acting in judgment to bring people to salvation. Listen again to what Kidna comments. Although the outcome is peace, the process is judgment. The reassuring words he makes war cease are set in a context not of gentle persuasion, but of a world devastated and forcibly disarmed. So we need to pray... Not only for peace among nations, but for peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pray for people in war in our world, for the Afghanis, the Iraqis, the Lebanese, for Hezbollah, for Israelis, for British soldiers, for American soldiers, that they may seek God's salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, because a day is coming of final and ultimate salvation. And God speaks through these devastating events to wake us up and make us realize there is nothing substantial in this world and that His judgment finally comes. So we see what God is doing, but then the psalmist goes on and says, see what God will do. Verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. A day is coming when God says He will finally blow the whistle on on our warring world when He will finally ring down the curtain of human history, and when He alone will be exalted among the nations and in the earth. And not only that, the one who will be exalted above all to the highest place is the one who humbled Himself to the lowest place. The choir sang for us at the name of Jesus. He humbled Himself, became a man, became obedient to death, even death on the cross, And this is what it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the end of human history. Now the wise move, if that is going to happen, is to bow the knee voluntarily and confess that Jesus is Lord rather than forcibly at the end of human history. So, the appeal to be still is not a word of comfort from the Lord, but a word of command, telling a warring world and us in rebellion against Him to recognize that He is God and to bow the knee before the Son who is God, the man who is God, to confess that Jesus is Lord. So, be still and know that He is God. And only when you do that You need not fear. Yes, we pray and work for peace. But we do it in the assurance that the end of the story is certain. So what should you pray? Two things, if you're a Christian. Supremely. One, your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Two, Maranatha. Come quickly. Lord Jesus. Let me finish with a conclusion. Almost there. Don't if you like hymns with choruses. They were especially popularized, of course, in the 19th century by Ari D. Sankey, who was the accompanist to the great evangelist uh, Dwight L. Moody. He wrote songs with choruses and he even wrote choruses for songs that didn't have choruses. But there is some precedent for hymns with choruses not least in the Psalms. So, as we conclude Psalm 46, a final appeal. Don't forget the chorus. It's repeated twice in the Psalm. Verse 7 and verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This chorus reminds us of two important things as we conclude, emphasized by its twice-repeated nature. First of all, He is the Lord Almighty. God is able to help us. The words the Lord Almighty is, Almighty is the word Tzabaoth, which is a Hebrew word that means hosts. Probably refers to the angelic heavenly hosts that do the bidding of God. He is the commander of the heavenly armies who do his bidding. He is more than able to do all the psalmist says about him and more in salvation and in judgment. But should that alarm us, the second phrase reminds us that He is also the God of Jacob. God is willing to help us. Uh, the New Living Translation, I notice of Psalm 46, translates it in both verses as the God of Israel. And the little footnote at the bottom says, Hebrew, Jacob. Uh, that's a mistake because it's consigned, what is the point, to a footnote. The point is what the psalmist is saying is, He's the God of Jacob. Oh yes, Jacob did become Israel, one who prevailed with God. But he spent most of his life twisting, cheating, going his own way, running against God. And when God chose him, he was called Jacob. Jacob, the one who cheats and twists. It's an example, the greatest example in the Old Testament, of God's grace. That God reaches out to people who are totally undeserving, who are in rebellion against Him, who are trying to do their own thing, live by their own resources. And whenever you see the, the phrase, the God of Jacob, just rejoice because we're all Jacobs. Are no, we not? We need God's grace. This morning you might say, well, I heard what you're saying, but this doesn't apply to me. You, you just don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know what a mess I've made. You don't know how I've gone my own way. And I say, no, I don't. But I do know this He's the God of Jacob. He's not only able to help you, he's willing to help you if you'll only call out to him. And he's the God of Jacob Abraham, Isaac and Jacob but he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who offers God's grace to needy people to the Jacobs in our world. I simply say to you today bow the knee to him confess that Jesus is Lord commit your life to him. Then you can say with God's people with assurance therefore we will not fear and you can sing with God's people the Lord Almighty is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress read, reflect, rejoice so let's stand and sing